An intense heat wave baked the European continent during the summer of 2016, carrying temperatures that reached 95 degrees Fahrenheit deep into northern Siberia. It became so hot that swaths of Arctic terrain that had been frozen for decades began to thaw. The extreme heat wasn't the only strange occurrence taking place that summer in Russia's far north. In July, reindeer in Siberia's Yamalo-Nenez region began dying in mass from anthrax, a deadly bacterial disease that hadn't been seen there since 1941. By early August, the outbreak had killed a 12-year-old boy, hospitalized 90 people for observations, and killed more than 2,300 reindeer. The outbreak was believed to have been kindled by bacterial spores that had been dormant since before World War II, possibly inside the frozen carcass of a reindeer that had died from the disease 75 years earlier. As the melting ice exposed the carcass, the spores were released into the nearby ground, where they were ingested by grazing animals before spreading to the nomadic herders, whose diet depends on the reindeer. This tragedy was a pressing reminder that billions of potent microscopic creatures have been frozen deep within the Arctic soil, sometimes for centuries. As climate change threatens to thaw permafrost and revive microbial multitudes, it underscores the need to do more research to better understand these tiny organisms and to comprehend their potentially outsized impact. Permafrost, a ground that has been frozen for at least two years, covers more than 24% of the Northern Hemisphere, and it is teeming with microbes, including many with unique metabolic capabilities that have allowed them to adapt to extremely low temperatures. Meanwhile, numerous studies indicate climate change is causing accelerated heating of Arctic regions where permafrost is located. With this in mind, Erdic is conducting extensive basic research to examine the activity of these microorganisms during permafrost thaws. Benefiting from Erdic's permafrost research tunnel in Fox, Alaska, as well as its world-class cold regions research facilities in Hanover, New Hampshire, this cross-disciplinary effort is improving our fundamental understanding of permafrost soils and the vast microbial communities located within them. That knowledge will not only enable better remediation of possible dangers, but it will also spark new ideas that harness the powerful organisms for a multitude of applications such as environmental sensing, cleaning oil spills, or even creating electricity in remote locations. I'm Chris Kiefer, and with Megan Holland, this is The Power of Erdic. Our guest today is Dr. Robin Barbado, a research microbiologist at Erdic's Cold Regions Research and Engineering Laboratory in Hanover, New Hampshire. We will talk with Robin about how this research effort will improve our understanding of the impact of climate change on Arctic ecosystems and enable new technologies that will support military operations in extreme cold regions. Hey Robin, it's good to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Megan. It's great to be here. So studying microorganisms living in frozen ground just probably isn't a topic that many people think much about, but it's clearly something that you're very passionate about. Can you tell us a little bit about your research at a high level? So the work that we do is looking at microbes in cold regions. And so microbes are these tiny creatures. And in fact, you have more microbes on you than your own human cells. So, so you're a walking microbe. And these microbes are, are in soil around the globe. And collectively, they're conducting a lot of reactions that are meaningful for us. So they help plants to grow. 
They help to keep the soil strong. They help to support other organisms that eat them and then animals eat those organisms. So they're a critical component to the ecology of a system. And in this one particular area that we're studying are microbes that are entrained in, in permafrost, which is ground that's been frozen for at least two years. So under these frozen conditions, sub-zero Celsius, these microbes, we're finding them that they're active. And um, these microbes are mostly good, right? They, they're doing things like helping to provide nitrogen to other organisms, but there's also some of the these that you mentioned in your um, your introduction mm-hmm. where they could be bad. So we're interested in studying them in the frozen state and then what happens when they thaw. So this frozen ground is thawing and the microbes are activating. So they're waking up and they're starting to grow and proliferate. And there's a lot of uncertainty of what's going to happen where, which microbes are going to wake up and what kind of um, reactions that they're going to mediate. Robin, you mentioned them waking up. Are we talking about some of these that have been around for years and decades and centuries? Yes. A great testbed for this work is the Permafrost Tunnel. And it's uh, just north of Fort Wainwright, which is where our um, Krell, uh, Alaska office is. Yeah, for the listeners, that's an Arctic research facility. Yes, that's the Urtic Research Facility. And when you walk in, the reason I'm going into this story is when you walk into it, it's capturing 20,000 to 40,000 years before the present. So the first time I went there, they handed me a bone and I looked in my hands. I was like, what is this bone? It was a mammoth femur. So permafrost can be as old as when mammoths were walking the planet. But in terms of the microbes, too, I mean, are, are some of these microbes, because they're in ice, frozen in ice, able to survive and, and, and revive after X number of years? Absolutely, yeah. So these microbes that were theoretically entrained in the permafrost as a time capsule 20, 30,000 years ago, we're taking that piece of history and we're saying, okay, wake up under the modern conditions. What are you going to do? And then we measure it. So. I know this research is receiving military funding. Why does the military care about frozen microbes? So microorganisms in soil are really important to help with how soil aggregates form. So how soil is, whether or not it's strong for military vehicles, these microbes also can be liberated and corrode different uh, infrastructure that the military is interested in. And also, if these microbes are harmful, then that's important for the warfighters who are conducting operations in these subarctic and Arctic regions. Or even um, they could be used for environmental surveillance. So microorganisms don't have feelings. Don't tell anybody. (laughs) But um, what we can do is for biotechnology, we can insert genes of other things into the microorganisms. And it's possible that they are a sensor. So if you could imagine them uh, lighting up when uh, you're interested in in observing a, a particular thing happening. So they can be used also as sensors, a growing area for uh, military research. And then on the civil work side, can this research help improve understanding of climate change? 
Absolutely. That's the crux of a lot of permafrost research is that there's this locked up carbon. And as the Arctic is warming, the microorganisms are starting to use this carbon. And the end of the process is carbon dioxide and methane that are going into uh, the atmosphere that could in turn amplify climate change and exacerbate it. So that's one area. And another one is kind of going back to the idea of these microbes as sensors. So these microbes are equipped to survive under these really, really cold conditions, right? Mm -hmm. I was doing some field work in the winter and it was negative 23 degrees Fahrenheit. And they said, oh, it's warmer than we expected. So these microbes in the soil can withstand these really cold temperatures. So you could imagine for biotechnology application, if you're interested in, say, the integrity of a bridge for civil works purposes or or water quality, that we can use these microbes that are adapted to these really cold conditions and that they're hardy to help mitigate these issues in other environments or also in cold environments. With regard to the bridge example, it's biotechnology, new ways to figure out the integrity of the bridge through standoff sensing. You can see that microbe light up, right? If we insert light up genes, just like If you think about fireflies, right, and they're lighting up, they're indicating something, could we insert those types of genes into the microbe to say, hey, that bridge doesn't look really healthy? Or from a water quality perspective, microbes are really good at eating things. Some of them have a very versatile appetite. So if you have perhaps a contaminant or there was something accidental and you want to stimulate microbes to break that down, that's definitely possible. And so microbes from cold regions can really help because they're hardy and they have that versatile appetite. To build on when you talk about a contaminant, you all have done some research, correct me if I'm wrong, on oil spills and and using some of these microbes to help clean up oil spills. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right, Chris. So a few years ago, we were funded by the Navy in Utqiagvik, Alaska, which is formerly Barrow, Alaska. That's the tippy top. And they had some legacy oil spills up there, and it's hard to get up there. And so these traditional remediation technologies just didn't work. They were breaking because it was so cold and windy. And so we stimulated the microbes in the soil, which is called bioremediation, and added native uh, Arctic plants, which is called phytoremediation, to stimulate this oil that had been sitting there for over, you know, 70 years. And it's really interesting doing that field work because we're at the tippy top of Alaska. We're right near the Arctic Ocean. And it, we had some, uh, let's say, practical considerations when doing field work, and that's polar bears. So for that work, we had to hire a bear guard, which is an indigenous Alaskan who um, is equipped to fire off some warning shots (laughs) if a polar bear thinks that I look like a tasty treat. (laughs) We were also hunting for microbes in permafrost. So we were in the tundra and we wear these white bunny suits because, like I said earlier, we have so many microbes on us that we as scientists don't want to contaminate our precious permafrost sample that we're collecting. So we have what's called the cipri core, and we're drilling vertically into the soil in the tundra to collect that permafrost sample. 
So I am not looking up and around. I'm looking to either drill or catch the permafrost core so that we can then carefully place it. So we're focused on our samples and then we have a, a, an individual or a team who can help protect us from the elements, if you will. And, and speaking of blending in, when we talked about this earlier, you mentioned that polar bears are smart enough to cover their noses since that's the only part of them that's not white. Yes, we had training up there and we learned that they can cover themselves. So then it makes them all white. So this is a basic research project. Can you explain what that means and why basic research is important? Basic research is really asking questions about fundamental science. So we don't necessarily have an application in mind. We know that this would improve military operations in some way, but in 10 or 20 years. And I think microbial ecology, soil microbiology, the work that we're doing uh, really speaks to that because it's more of a, a nascent discipline, but there's such rich opportunity. So basic research is fundamental research. And the questions that we're asking and why they're important is because when you understand the fundamental nature, you observe things in nature, like the first discovery of, hey, microbes can, can grow, you know, even though it's really cold. I remember for my PhD asking my advisor, hey, should we sample in the winter? And he said, no, nothing's happening. And now I'm at the Urtic Cold Regions Lab and it's like everything is happening in the winter. There, you know, what other time would you even want to study? I'm, I'm joking about yeah. that. But seriously, it's, there's an opportunity to make these new discoveries and observations of things that we didn't think were possible, that microbes would activate, really questioning their strategies. One outcome of this research is we were looking at the products that the microbes were making, and we found that under frozen conditions, it was like a fight. The microbes were producing these metabolites to hurt other neighboring microbes. And then once it warmed up, then they just started cooperating and mm. growing. It's like floodgates open and they're like, we need to grow to survive. So that's kind of fundamental questions that then can be built on for more applied research, but it takes time. Okay, I have to ask you, what is the coldest temperature you've ever worked in? Oh my gosh. So I'm going to answer this, Megan, but then my colleagues are going to laugh at me because they've been in far colder places. So mine is is negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit, which so I think cold. other people would kind of be like, oh, Robin, that's no big deal. And it wasn't for an extended period of time. I have colleagues, I'll name one of them, Dr. Zoe Corville goes to Antarctica and, and travels to South Pole to make sure the traverse is safe. And boy, has she undergone much colder conditions than me. When we do our laboratory incubations, which means that we collect, we collect that permafrost sample, then we bring it to the cold room. And when we process it, the, the analogy I like to give is you got to get to the Tootsie of the Tootsie Pop without licking it. And think about that a little bit. Imagine getting to the center of something kind of without touching it, right? Because we want this pure, beautiful sample that we can analyze. Then we stick them in the incubator. So we only have to withstand the cold conditions for just short period of times, but the, the microbes, they have to withstand it for longer. So <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Robin, how did you get involved in this research? 
Yeah, it's kind of interesting to think about it. And and I, I just feel super lucky. So when I came to Erdic and Erdic Krell, Cold Regions Lab, I had studied wildfires and I really didn't know much about the cold, but I had a unique opportunity to travel with my mentor at the time up to the Fairbanks office. And let me tell you, they are an amazing, amazing group of people. And do amazing research. And so they said, okay, Ron, let's go to the tunnel. I'm like, what, what is this? The tunnel, the, I don't know the tunnel, the tunnel. And so they took me to the, the Erdic research facility, the permafrost tunnel. And I was just blown away. I have the chills up and down my body thinking about it. I, I, I just, wow. And they handed me the femur, which I, I mentioned that yeah. story earlier. Like, first you're letting me touch this. Like, this is the coolest thing ever, you know, like, can I stick it in my pocket? And then I don't, I don't notice it on the plane back. Right. But, um, yeah. And, and I was like, Oh my gosh, I can walk through this and I can see the soil. And then there's tiny microbes living in there. And at that time, there hadn't been a lot done specifically on the tunnel. There had been some studies, but not a lot. And it sparked a conversation with other researchers there saying, oh, oh, yeah, we've said, you know, uh, my colleague, Dr. Tom Douglas was kind enough to take us into the tunnel and collect some samples, which is not easy. You're talking about picking up this heavy Cipri drill core, like, and then like, he's drilling into the side. It's like totally incredible. And then, you know, just having conversation. Oh yeah, we've studied the chemistry. Oh yeah, this, you know, there's some gradation of time here, like a time capsule to study ancient molecules. It just spurred this thought process in my mind of like, what microbes are living there? I need to know. And what happens when it warms? And so then we got a larger Erdic team together to tackle that question, which spawned this basic research project that I've been describing. So what makes Erdic a unique place to do this research? When I think of the strength and the power of Erdic, for me, it always comes down to the people. And I don't know another place where you can sit next to a geophysicist or have a conversation with an atmospheric scientist or a hydrologist and come up with these wild research ideas. And so our research totally benefited from cross-disciplinary teaming and Erdic as a hub of unique and uh, specialized talent in these different areas and that we can come together and ask really interesting questions. Because guess what? The permafrost environment or the environment in, in general, it's not only microbes, which is you know what I like to study it, and have experience in studying. It's not just chemistry. It's not just the physical you know, soil particles. It's all of these things. So what Erdic, you know, the beauty of Erdic is that people with expertise in all these different disciplines can come and tackle this challenging problem that's affected by so many different things. It's like interdisciplinary on steroids. It's, it's, wow. It just elevates the opportunity to discover new things and tackle complex problems. And, and I believe we are able to do that with our permafrost work, because even if I could have come up with that research question on my own, which I didn't, it was with a team and my colleagues, but even if I could have, 
I would have gone up there with my little shovel and hey, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get some frozen soil and I would have failed miserably. But other people with logistics experience and hey, the chemistry in this particular area has been really interesting. Oh yeah, 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 let's sample that area. That's what makes it really effective research too. So Arctic also has some pretty special facilities that have enabled this research. You mentioned the cold room earlier, and I know that's in your laboratory in New Hampshire. Can you tell us what that is? In New Hampshire, we have a suite of cold rooms that can be set at various temperatures. And what's really important with that is I'll give you an example. If you ever tried to like do something with an ice cube, you know, in your kitchen, right? It's just melting in your hands. You're looking and you're like, oh, okay, uh, let me go back in the freezer. But imagine if you were working in the freezer. And so we have specialized cold rooms where we can keep the temperatures low, either refrigerator temperature or freezing temperature, so that we can analyze the samples further. The example I gave you about us processing it, right? So we have to we have to shave the outer part of the core. We have to run it under some solutions. We take a sterile drill and get our little subcores out of there. If we were doing that at room temperature, we'd be basically muddy. <laughs> but in the cold room, it enables us to do that. We also have molecular laboratories where we can look at the molecules like DNA and RNA from the samples that tells us who the microbes are and what they're doing. And we also have equipment to understand the the soil properties as well, in addition to something that I'm really excited about, and that's taking the organism out of the sample growing it kind of like when you went to the doctor and got a test for strep throat you remember like oh they poke the back of your throat and then they they spread it on the petri plate um instead of the throat we poke the permafrost and then spread it on a petri plate and we're isolating new organisms for our urtic krell ice cold library and these organisms are uh, ones that we're using for future biotechnology applications those uh, wild ideas that I shared with you of, of why this research is important um, on the front end of our discussion. Yeah, and I wanted to build you know off of that very point, these biotechnologies, and, and I know we talked about a few of them at the front of the show, but tell us more about what some of these technologies could be. Absolutely. So biotechnology is a really broad area, and microbes obviously fit into it because they're living, right? They're, they're microbiology. Mm-hmm. So they're part of biology. And some applications could include just the organism itself and enticing it to grow or behave in a certain way. So you could imagine if you're in an area where you want to make a certain material, well, can that organism make the material already? And then can that be a bioreactor at your site where you're making a lot of that product? There's a lot of discussion about rare earth elements and if microbes can help make and transform them, which would Hmm. be critical to production of military items, things uh, that uh, are very important to the military. So that's the microbes themselves and the kind of idea of biotechnology. There's also an area that we're researching called synthetic biology, 
where you can use the hub of an organism, if you will, the scaffold, it's called the chassis, and insert new genes into it. Say you want it to light up, say you want it to break down a particular contaminant, you can insert genes, or you can take an organism that people know a lot about, and maybe you take a cold tolerance gene and stick it in that organism. And then it can survive under uh, colder conditions, and it can break down some contaminant or some compound of interest. I say this very generally, it's very difficult to do. So it's an emerging field, but theoretically, it's possible and we're demonstrating that it can be done. In the field of synthetic biology, there's been so much work on what uh, we call the domesticated organisms. So Escherichia coli, E. coli, people mm-hmm. might be familiar with. And then one you might really be familiar with is Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is a yeast. And that's very popular for beer <laughs> to huh. make beer. So actually, if you're drinking, that's a microbial uh, process right there. And so these organisms, they're really well known but they don't survive under environmental conditions where you would want to censor, where you would want to produce the material. Um, imagine if you could sprinkle the microbe in a place if you know the regulations allowed you to do so and that it could help clean up an area or help inform you who walked there before. Some of these really interesting ideas that we have spinning mm-hmm. around. Another one I think you've talked about before is the ability to produce electricity using some of these organisms. Is that right? Yes. So we have another basic research project looking at electrogenic microorganisms. And so these are microorganisms that are in the soil. They're in the soil right now uh, outside of your door and um, they produce electricity. There's a voltage that you can measure. They're bio batteries. They could make little lights blink. And Hmm. so what we found though, is when we, they were in the presence of uh, military relevant compounds that their voltage patterns change. And so they could be used as a form of detecting human activities. Hmm. So we've talked a lot about the permafrost research tunnel. Can you tell us exactly what that is and what makes it so unique? The unique part of our research, particularly in, in the permafrost tunnel, is really trying to understand and, and show that there are microbes in different places And when it starts to warm, different ones are going to emerge. And by understanding which ones are going to emerge, you can then start thinking about how to tune it to what you want to emerge. So maybe there's one that has a lot of potential pathogens. Well, can you tune it so they don't uh, necessarily grow, or maybe you're interested in um, helping reduce some certain uh, process, then the question is, can you tune it? And by understanding the fundamental nature of what's generally going to happen as climate change occurs, and there's a big question, like I said, about the carbon that's locked up in the permafrost, but we also can ask some more or different questions like, What's the potential for pathogens? And in 2019, the National Academies of the Sciences asked me to help organize a meeting on that very topic of microbial threats in the Arctic. Like we hear about these different situations occurring, the situation of Bacillus anthracis in Russia, Mm -hmm. which Bacillus anthracis causes anthrax. 
Well, let me tell you, that's in the soil. Again, outside of your door, there's, I mean, in one gram of soil, which is the size of a pen cap, a billion bacterial cells and a thousand different species. Species being like human, ape, slime mold, like, like, but on the microbial, on the bacterial scale, right? Like there's all these different species able to do these different things. So you have this diversity. And so we all got together thinking, okay, what's, so you could find anthrax right outside your door, right? Number one, but why does it infect you? Why is it okay then, but not okay in this scenario in Russia? And so we came together asking that question and the outcome was we need more research. We need to fundamentally understand what the microbes are and, and what they're doing. And if different places across the landscape are behaving similarly or differently. Like if we study permafrost microbiome in uh, Sweden, is that the same as studying the permafrost microbiome in Canada? And the answer is no, because the permafrost itself is different. The microorganisms entrained in that permafrost is different. And then what our research found um, through our work in Urtic is that then the outcome of temperature, you're going to get a different combination of microbes. But we have all this data that we can interrogate further and also start to try to model this system, to, to develop predictions that inform how things are going to be in the future. Can you tell us about some of the unique methods that your team is used to extract permafrost samples? There's a couple different phases to this. One is just to collect the sample. And that's courtesy of of colleagues like Tom Douglas, who has been um, working in this area for decades, where we take this drill and we actually sample, get that permafrost core out. Then we have to just hope, cross our toes and fingers that that is transported back to the laboratory, still frozen. Then it's a question of getting to the sample that we want to study. And that's when we bring it into the cold room. And then, you know, that's the Tootsie of the Tootsie Pop, as I was describing earlier, where we're trying to get to the center of that material that hasn't been, you know, accidentally coughed on. And then from there, we either take it and we extract materials from it. So we've extracted the DNA, so the genetic makeup of the microbe, so we can take their DNA. It's kind of like a puzzle where imagine you get a puzzle and I just dumped it right in front of you and it's all mixed up. And then you start putting it together and you can see the picture. We do the same thing for the microbial DNA to figure out who they are. And the importance of who they are is we can start to determine what they do. So for instance, Megan, I'm just making this up. Say you really like steak and Chris, say you like Brussels sprouts. Well, if we see a lot of Megan's in our sample, well, hey, maybe maybe there's steak there. Maybe steak is what's on the menu or maybe we see a mixture. Oh, in that place, we got some steak and Brussels sprouts. And I'm using a, you know, a, a yeah. general analogy, right? But the same goes for the microbes where they have these appetites of what they prefer to eat. And this can tell us when we know who they are, we can figure out what they're doing. Robin, who are some of the partners that y'all have worked with on your research? It's an amazing group of people. So we have the Krell Soil Microbiology team that's just been phenomenal trying to understand what microbes 
are located in the permafrost. And then we have expanded to the um, Alaska Research Office as well, focused on geochemistry. I mentioned Tom Douglas, also Amanda Barker, looking at the geochemistry. And then from the Erdic lens, our colleagues focused on uh, DNA technology and understanding larger organisms from the environmental laboratory. And then we have collaborators outside of Erdic as well which includes um, the University of New Hampshire as one of our, our primary colleagues. And my colleague, uh, Stacey Doherty, um, in the soil micro team, she earned her master's at UNH on permafrost microbiome research, which is a funny story. And hopefully she doesn't hate me for bringing it up, but I remember. So Stacy trained as an undergrad in chemistry and then started working with us in soil micro. And she said, Robin, don't get any ideas. I'm, I'm a chemist. I don't like microbiology. And then she just earned her master's in microbiology <laughs> at UNA studying the permafrost microbiome. So she amplified our collaboration with local permafrost microbiome researchers there. And then we also have other collaborators in the permafrost microbiome, and we've um, shared samples with them. And, and one example is um, University of Colorado Boulder, where they're looking at how long it takes the microbes to grow under these frozen conditions, and then also when the permafrost thaws, so how their rates are. And so we're excited to um, collaborate with him on that work as well. You know, especially what I found in Erdic too, is there's a lot of really cool research going on, right? A lot of, and a lot of very applied research. And it's very exciting to me to help bring microbes into the picture of thinking about like, oh, okay, I'm interested in how strong the soil is. Well, do you know that soil is living? You know, and maybe they do or maybe they don't, but soil is a living entity. We don't use the D word, D-I-R-T. I can't say it. <laughs> and then thinking about just the diversity of, of microbes and something I, I haven't mentioned yet, but I'd like to is there's so much that we don't know about the microorganisms in um, cold regions. One, because they're difficult to get to, like I've given some examples of that. Difficult to get the samples back safely and still under the, the conditions that they were before. And maybe we just haven't figured out a way to entice that microbe to grow in the laboratory. And so it's kind of like the Amazon of the North. Just like you think of the Amazon as this rich area, like, oh, the next cancer fighting drug is going to be in there. Or like pharmaceutical. Well, I have that opinion of, of microbes in the North and something we haven't talked about much, but we have studied um, our microbes in Antarctica. There's such untapped information. And the fact that they're all around us already and that we can tweak them to do things that we want um, is really powerful in the lens of military research. Fascinating. What does the future hold for this effort? Gosh, that's a great question, Megan. So we have some fundamental knowledge on the permafrost microbiome. And we as in the collective, you know, permafrost microbe enthusiasts, right, across the globe. So we have this notion of like, okay, things are changing, but it's really going from what's there, right, observations, microbial surveys, and now going to modeling 
this system that's in transition. So the other thing is climate change is causing this region to change at unprecedented rates. Permafrost thaw is occurring at rates that people have ne never seen before. So not only are we doing this fundamental research, but we're doing it on, the, on this changing system. So we need to keep doing it to get these observations of how the system is going to change. And of course, I, you know, I'm like, boop, right onto permafrost micro, but microbes are just one aspect of this, this larger system. If you imagine the military operating in this region, well, hey, wouldn't you want to know when it's better to move? How does the strength of the soil change under these changing conditions? And so I think those are um, areas ripe for the future. And also taking these microbial data sets that we have, we have this rich information about their genetics. And so now we can ask even more questions like, hey, do we find virulence genes in here? Do they transfer? Because microbes, they transfer genetic information. Humans do it one way, <laughs> microbes do it another way. <laughs> and so we also don't know if these changing conditions are resulting in new microbes with new capabilities. We have this really rich information from the basic research, and it's time to, oh gosh, I'm going to say a pun, dig deeper <laughs> into it. So we, we literally need to dig dig deeper to ask these secondary and very relevant questions. That, that's awesome. Thanks, Robin. Do you think you've really brought a lot of light to a topic that people have probably never really thought much about at all before and, and is so rich for so many possibilities? So th thank you so much yes, for your time. Yes, Robin, thank you for spilling the DRT about frozen microbes today. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to... Um, yeah, just have an opportunity to communicate um, the unseen, right? Like we don't see microbes with our eyes, but we can use them in really interesting ways. And I just feel so fortunate to be able to do research at Erdic, where I have the opportunity to work with an amazing team. It's really all about them. So little about me. I mean, they are amazing. And we can ask these difficult questions. You know, it's research. It hasn't been done before. So lots of falling down and getting up. But together, we're really exploring and pushing the envelope of how can we understand the environment? How can we get information, like all that, you know, nerdy information in our minds into the hands of a warfighter for action. And even microbes can be part of that because they're part of the environment. So it's truly been a pleasure um, speaking with you. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the research that I do. Great, thanks Rob. As the anthrax outbreak in Russia demonstrated, microbes living inside the Arctic permafrost cannot be ignored. More research is needed to fundamentally understand their properties. Erdic possesses the unique combination of expertise, cross-disciplinary teaming, and world-class facilities to provide new knowledge that will enable future research efforts that mitigate the dangers presented by these microorganisms and best harness their power for good. And because this is basic research, the full impact of Erdic's efforts will continue to percolate for years to come. The Power of Erdic Podcast is a production of the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. 
Follow Erdic on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest information. You can listen to the Power of Erdic podcast and all major podcast players. Please subscribe and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Visit powerofurticpodcast.org for more resources. You can also contact us at powerofurticpodcast at usace.army.mil. That's all we have time for today. We'll see you next time.